Uh, good morning. It's good to see you. We are starting a new series today in the book of Ruth, and I want to start it with this little story. This week, I had the opportunity to volunteer at one of our vaccination sites in Arizona at uh, State Farm Stadium, where the Cardinals play football. And uh, I got to volunteer there, and don't worry, I was not administering vaccines. Right, take a deep breath. I was not doing that, nor did I actually see it happening. I was in a, a zone where essentially I was a traffic controller. So I had the yellow vest on, and I had an orange flag in my hand, and for nine hours, here's all that I did. I said, hard left, hard left, hard left. In fact, I've been saying that at sleep, in my sleep at night, because I said it so many times over the course of nine hours, I was either saying hard left, or I was saying lane eight, or lane four. You see, my job, very important, don't miss this, my job was to direct traffic for 10 lanes of cars to keep the flow going so people could check in before they went around and got their vaccine. And as efficient, I'm proud of my state, proud to be an Arizonian. It was very efficient with all volunteers. It was crazy. And I would see if somebody had checked in already in front of me, hard left, they go get their vaccine. If they hadn't, come to a lane, check in. And it was this amazing process, but what I did was very ordinary. I didn't administer the vaccine. I didn't, I didn't get to be in the place where I, I got to see it happening. And yet, all around me, they said about 10,000 people just that day, all around me, people were getting vaccinated to help stop a global pandemic. Like extraordinary things were happening in and all around me. And I was just doing very ordinary things of saying hard left and lame eight. Now, why start that way? Because that is the story of Ruth. Ruth, what we see is we don't see like uh, the book of Exodus. We don't see bread falling down from uh, sky. We don't see a burning bush. We don't see the parting of seas. And, and Ruth didn't get to see that. No, what we see is primarily over 50% of the book of Ruth is just dialogue. It's just conversation. And yet, miraculous things are happening all in around this story that, that ripple out beyond the book of Ruth through our whole Bible as we see Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is the descendant from Ruth. That was a spoiler alert. That happens in chapter 4. We see this start to play out. But my point is, what's amazing about the book of Ruth is you see extraordinary miracles happening, even if you don't see them in front of your face. Even if it just seems like ordinary means, God is using those ordinary means to bring about extraordinary miracles. So I'm so excited to start this book with you and to, to see this story develop. And so I'd love for you to attend all five weeks. We're going to be in this series for five weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter. Yes, Easter is only five weeks away, so get ready for that. Uh, but we're going to go through this book together, and what I would love for you to do is not just join in this room or join online, but to, to read the story. Here's what happens when you read a story in the Old Testament like this. The more you read it, the more you understand it, the more you begin to see the context behind it and the overarching story of all of Scripture, and the more it comes alive to you. And so I would encourage you, grab one of these uh, ESV journals of the book of Ruth that has lines in there for you to take notes. If you walked in the room, you got one of those. Take this with you. Just some accountability for you to read this story and see it come alive in your life. Because here's the reality. God didn't just do extraordinary miracles through ordinary means in Ruth's day. He does that in our day. 
And I know a lot of us who are in this room, who are watching online, we feel like, hey, a lot of my life is just conversation. A lot of it's just simple dialogue with other people. A lot of it's seemingly insignificant decisions. We look at the book of Ruth. There's two widows and there's a farmer. Those are the main characters of the story. And a lot of us, we feel that kind of ordinary life. But we can see today God do extraordinary miracles through our ordinary lives, just like he did in the book of Ruth. And so we need to, to, to check in all the way uh, fully into this story to see what God might want to do in our life as well. I'm excited to dive in the book of Ruth. You guys dive in there with me. Head to the book, if you haven't already, in your physical copy of your Bible. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll see it right after the book of Judges. You'll see Ruth. And so flip there with me. Uh, Ruth chapter 1. We'll start in verse one. It is a story, so we're going to read it like one. We're going to read uh, three sections of the story and just talk about what God is doing in the midst of this story. So look at it with me. Ruth chapter one, starting in verse one. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people back in Bethlehem and given them food. So she set up from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So stopping right there, verses 1 through 7, if you notice, we just get facts at this point. No conversation, no dialogue. The, the author is kind of giving you the context of the story, and this is important. If you know, if you read a good story, you need to know the context. Primarily, you need to know time and place, and we get both of those. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, we get the time. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, I mentioned this. Judges is the seventh book of our Old Testament. So literally, again, if you have your physical copy of your Bible, if you flip back one page, you'll be in the book of Judges. And a good way to summarize the book of Judges is just to read the last verse. It says this in the book of Judges, they did what was right, the people did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you'll know numerous amount of times, it says that same line, these people did what was right in their own eyes. And so here's this season, here's the time that we're in, in the book of Ruth. It's the time of the judges. These military leaders primarily, not, not national political leaders, they weren't kings. This is before King Saul, King David. This is the time of the judges, and there were people doing what was right in their own eyes. So therefore, you have an incredibly dark time, an incredibly rebellious time, an incredibly chaotic time. And that's the setting, the backdrop for the story of Ruth. That's the time. We also get the place. We see this guy named Elimelech. He moves his family from Bethlehem 
to Moab. If you notice, the author mentions that twice. Anytime you see something repeated in Scripture, that's significant, and it's significant here. You see, this isn't just a change in scenery. It's a change in spirituality. You see, you have to understand, Bethlehem, it was part of God's promised land, where God promised, this is why it's called promised land, God's promising to give his people his blessing and his presence there in that land. That's Bethlehem. And so as Elimelech takes his family, uproots them, and they go to Moab, they're leaving the promises of God. They're leaving his blessing. They're leaving God's people, and they're traveling to a foreign land. But again, not just a change in scenery. This is a change in spirituality. That as we learn about Moab, we look in a place like Genesis chapter 19 in our Bible, and we see a guy named Lot. We see the origin of Moabites. And we see this story of, of Lot, and we see him give his own daughters up to be gang raped by other people. That's Lot. We see Lot go on to have sex with his daughters. And his descendants, through that corruption, that's the Moabites. And what we see as we go on to read in the Old Testament, these are a people that are saturated by oppressing other people, including the Israelites. There are people saturated in sexual immorality. There are people saturated in idle, even demonic worship. And so as you read just a few lines, okay, they moved places. You need to understand the context of the story. You see how it comes alive? Elimelech takes his family from God's presence and God's people, and he moves really far away from that, not just geographically, but spiritually. Now, this is good for us to see, right? You read a few lines in your Bible. This is about 10 years that takes place. Did you catch that? A lot happens when they move to Moab, and none of it's good, right? We see, we're going to see this loss take place, that Elimelech dies, his two sons they die. Naomi is by herself with these two Moabite women that her two sons had married. We see loss occur. as They change not just sceneries, but they change a spirituality. They leave the presence of God. Now, we don't get all the specifics of that. We don't get all the nuances of that. But what I can tell you is that this is what happens in life. The further you move away from God, his blessing, his people, his presence, the further you move away from that, there is pain. And I've seen it, not just in this case, but as a pastor, I see it all the time. Specifically, when people change locations, when they move places, and they think entirely logically and pragmatically and not biblically and spiritually. See, that's what's happening here. We read, there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. So some of you are thinking, Tim, why give the guy such a hard time? There's a famine. There's no food. He's just trying to provide for his family. But it went deeper than that, right? You see, we are not, as followers of God, we are not charged with just making decisions logically or pragmatically. We are charged to make decisions biblically and spiritually. We are charged to think I want to stay as close to God, his presence, and his people in my life. That is top priority. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things should be added to you. And so Elimelech got his priorities mixed up, and there was pain, and there was loss. And I see that today as a pastor. Specifically, again, sometimes people pick the place to move. Here's the questions we're asking. Where can I get the best job? Where can I make the most money? Where can I get the best house? Where are the best schools? Where can I be safe, secure, and comfortable? Believers in Jesus, 
This is at the top of their list. And listen, those aren't bad questions, but they're not the best questions. Those aren't faulty questions, but they're not the first questions we ask. As we make decisions, we do so not just logically or pragmatically. We do so biblically and spiritually because if we just make logical decisions, pragmatic decisions that lead us away from God, his people, and his presence, there will be pain and there will be loss, and I have seen it, and you have too. And so listen, men specifically, what I'm about to say is not politically correct, so just forgive me for a moment, but don't, because I'm going to say it and I believe it. Men specifically, you are called to lead your families, not just logically and pragmatically, but spiritually and biblically. So as you think about decisions, where do I move my family? What school do I put them in? How are we going to live this life? You see first and foremost spiritually and biblically, not logically and pragmatically. Listen, I'm a father and a husband, so I get it, right? Like, I want a good house. I want a good life for my kids. I want them to go to a a safe school. Like, I want them to have all these things. Like, I want them to grow up, all three of them, to be scholarship athletes, right? And if if you were at my son's soccer game yesterday, you would have seen that. I wanted a little bit too much, right? So I get it, right? And logically and pragmatically, those are good things. But they're down here, biblically and spiritually, that's up here. And so I want to be leading my family. Men, you need to be leading your family to think about Hey, where, not, not just best house, not just best, best school, not just best life, not just scholarship athlete, where can I lead my family? Where can we live, like actually live, so we can be closest to God and closest to his people? Because here's the reality, the house, the school, that will fade. But God's people and God's presence, that lasts for an eternity. You get your kids that, you get your wife and kids that, they will be blessed, I promise you. And what we have in our culture right now is we have, we have men making decisions, logical, prag, pragmatical, pragmatic, that's not a word, logical, pragmatic, no biblical and no spiritual. And I believe if we were to change that and flip that, and men by themselves, and then everybody else included, would start to operate biblically, spiritually, above logical and pragmatic, God would change things in our culture, Amen. That needs to happen. I hope you believe that, man. I hope you just said amen at the very least. But we all need to make decisions, not just logically, not just pragmatically, but biblically and spiritually. That was just a side note. That's not the sermon. So let's pick back up in the story. What we're going to see is there is loss with this decision. And I want you to see that loss. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, each of you, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in your own household with your own husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my, God, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. We see, just in those few verses in this story, we see loss. 
We see the loss first of family. For us, it's just a few lines. For them, it was three people who died. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her two sons. Orpah's husband, Ruth's husband, they all die. Just imagine, this is a story. Try to put yourself in it. Imagine that gravesite. Imagine Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and they're standing before husband lost, husband lost, husband lost, sons lost. It's a loss of a family in the scope of 10 years. Just put yourself in that loss. And again, they're away from God's presence. They're away from God's people. This is what they are experiencing. It's deep. It's unimaginable loss. And it also seems like a loss of favor. That's what Naomi is feeling. She's, her husband is gone. Her sons are gone. And in that culture, that was her value. That was her protection. That was her security. That was her future. And some of you are thinking, Tim, that's chauvinistic. Is the Bible chauvinistic? No, the Bible is not, but that culture was. And this is the reality of that story in that day. Again, it's not our day. This is a different time, and you need to understand to understand the, the, the devastating loss that Naomi has experienced. It's not just sad because a few people have died. Her whole life seemingly has died. Her future has died. That in that culture, a woman was known for what family she was going to build. And so you see it in her language, don't you? You see it in verse 11. She says, why would you come with me? Ruth and Orpah, I have nothing to offer. Even if I were to get married right now and have a son, you're gonna wait till they grow up and marry them? That's what you get with me. I'm a widow. I have no value, no, no security, and no future. Go back to your home. Don't come with me. And Naomi feels in this moment like the favor of God has completely left her life. We see it explicitly in verse 13. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is where she is. Unimaginable loss. She feels like she's lost the favor of God on her life. She started out in a place of Bethlehem, the promised land. God's promises, God's presence, God's people were with her, favored. She's left that, and now it feels like it has left her. Anybody ever been there? You feel like you lost the favor of God? Maybe you lost your job and you feel like, Tim, this is everything I've built my life up until this point was for my career and now I've lost it and I feel like I've lost God's favor. Maybe for some of you, the loss of a child. Maybe the inability to have children. We have a lot of people like that in our church who've experienced that, miscarriages. You feel like, God, Psalm 127 says, Children are a gift from the Lord. They're his heritage. How come I can't have a kid? You feel like you've lost God's favor. Some of y'all with fractured relationships, he's like, yeah, God's presence, God's power is with God's people. Man, all I know is hurt from God's people. You see flat, fractured relationships. Maybe God's favor is lost on me. Some of y'all with sickness in this last season, this diagnosis, and you feel like maybe I've lost God's favor. That's what Naomi is feeling right now. And listen, it's in these moments of unimaginable loss where we need to be reminded of God's unwavering loyalty. Like That's the answer. It's not a logical decision. It's not a pragmatic decision that's going to help you in that loss. It is a biblical, spiritual, unwavering loyalty from God himself 
that will restore you even in the midst of the most unimaginable loss. That's what Naomi needed. That's what you and I need. And that's what we get in the next part of its story. Look at it again with me, verse 14. We pick it up. It says this. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. That's Orpah and Ruth. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, this is Ruth, see your, or Naomi says this rather, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, and this is one of the best speeches in all the Bible, so get ready. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And I love this. Naomi says, okay, I guess you're determined. And she says, once she realized she was determined to go with her, she said no more. One of the best speeches in all of Scripture. Ruth has an opportunity to make a decision. There's an unimaginable loss. Logically and pragmatically, it makes no sense to go with Naomi. But how does she make her decisions? How does she make her decision? Not logically and pragmatically, biblically and spiritually. She shows unwavering loyalty to go with Ruth, to say she's gonna go with Ruth, but to show she's gonna go with Ruth. Do you see that? That what we get here is, is unwavering loyalty. It's a declaration backed by demonstration. Right? The closest thing as I read this that I could think about was a wedding. Right? Do you know some of that language? Where you go, I will go. I will be with you till death do us part. Except Ruth is not saying this to her husband. She's saying this, get this, to her mother-in-law. Now, how many of y'all, how many of y'all, unless your mother-in-law is in the room, you're, you're going to say no to this, how many of y'all have shown this kind of declaration and demonstration of loyalty to your mother-in-law? Nobody. But that's what Ruth does. It's unwavering loyalty through unimaginable loss and is banking on a, a declaration that's backed by demonstration. See, it's one thing to say things like this. Where you go, I'll go. It's catchy, right? That's why we named our series after that. Where you go, I'll go. It sounds like a great poem, like a Hallmark card. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to follow that up with action. I've experienced this. When we first started Phoenix Bible Church, there was a guy who we hadn't had our first launch Sunday, but he was at my house looking forward to the launch of Phoenix Bible Church. He was at my house, and we had dinner, and he's about to walk out the door. And he says this to me. He says, you ready to die together? And I said, no. Was this some kind of murder-suicide preface? Like, no? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, no, I'm just saying, like, we pick our local church, and, like, we're here. We're not going anywhere. And so this all works out. We're going to die together. And I said, okay. And he left. That was the exit after dinner. He didn't make it to our first public Sunday. It's one thing to, to say things that reflect an unwavering loyalty. You know this, right? It's one thing to say it. It's a different thing to show it. 
It's one thing to declare these amazing truths, to have a great mic drop moment. It's another thing to demonstrate that kind of loyalty. And Ruth does both. And this starts to change. We're going to see it in all four chapters. This starts to change the trajectory of Naomi's life, the trajectory of her whole family's life, and not just her family, but all families in the world, that Ruth ends up being the great-grandmother to David, that through the line of David, we get the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. Through a, a declaration, a demonstration, both. This is a declaration. It's backed by demonstration. It's unwavering loyalty in the midst of unimaginable loss, and it radically transforms everybody it's around. These are ordinary means. It's just a conversation. It's just a decision. It's just two widows and a farmer. Ordinary means, but extraordinary miracles. Do you see it? This is what the power of unwavering loyalty will do, even in the midst of unimaginable loss. But it's not just declaration backed by demonstration. It's a declaration packed with reflection, reflecting God himself. Right In the book of Exodus, over and over, God says to the Israelites, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Ruth says something close to that. I'll go where you go. I'll go with your God, your people. She's reflecting the covenantal, the loyal love of God himself. That this is a declaration backed by demonstration, but it's also a, a declaration packed with reflection of who God is. His very character and nature is unwavering loyalty. Even if there happens to be unimaginable unimaginable laws. That's who our God is. Do you know that God? A covenantal God, a God of promises. We sang about it earlier. We're going to sing about it again. A God of love, unwavering love. That's what the story of Ruth is about. It's about God himself showing his incredible, remarkable, unwavering loyalty to his people and through them as well. Now, Extraordinary miracles happen through this, through ordinary means. But that doesn't mean there wasn't power in what Ruth said. That doesn't mean there wasn't joy in what Ruth experienced. This week when I was at that vaccination site, I wasn't right giving the vaccine. I wasn't administering it. I didn't even get to be in the zone where it was happening. No, I was the idiot yelling at everybody with an orange flag. I got really good at it. I was like, you know, like form and technique was going on there. And you know what kind of happened? It was nine hours. Did I mention it was nine hours? You know what kind of happened, not just with me, but like our whole team of volunteers, traffic controllers, is you kind of like, you start to own this a little bit, right? You start to feel the power in it. You start to enjoy it a little bit. And it is it's part because of what you're doing, but it's also part of like, hey, this is hopefully a once in a generation thing. Amen. I don't want to go again in 20 years, but I'm part of, like, there's a global pandemic. We have a vaccine, and I'm a part of that. I don't get to see it happening, but I'm a part. It's happening all around me, and you start to get ownership, and it's not my job, and I was just there to volunteer. I got five minutes of orientation, and I'm just yelling at people, hard left, hard left, lane eight, lane eight. No, hold your hard left, get in lane eight, and I start to get some ownership and, like, some, some swag with this, right, and so I'm like, huh. Hard left, where you at? Lane eight, incoming, lane eight, coming in hot. 
And we all kind of did. In the end, it was really funny. I talked to this guy. I was like, hey, man, it was great serving with you. Awesome job. He was like, that was kind of fun. There was some power and there was some fun associated with that. Listen, just because it's extraordinary miracles through ordinary means doesn't mean they're not powerful means. Do you see it? doesn't mean it's not exciting to be a part of it. doesn't mean Ruth's story in and of itself wasn't amazing. Same way in your life. Just try it. Go to somebody else and tell them. Go to a friend. Go to your spouse and say, hey, I know we've experienced a lot of loss. Maybe it's just the pandemic. Maybe it's loss in our marriage. Maybe it's loss of relationship. Maybe it's loss of a job. Maybe it's loss of health. Go to your spouse, go to your friend and say, I know we've experienced all that, but where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. And until we die, I'm not leaving this. And then don't just say it, but show it. The power in that, the joy in that, of getting to be a part of God's redemptive story in all the earth, It's extraordinary miracles through ordinary means, but here's the reality. Nobody's ordinary, and no conversation is ordinary, and no action or decision like that is ordinary. That's extraordinary in and of itself. And you and I, if we read this story today, we have the opportunity to start implementing that right now in our closest relationships in our lives. God will use it. and He'll restore families. He'll bring people to salvation in Jesus. He'll do that through you. All we have to do is take a step in that direction. In our conversations, in our decisions, and in our actions. You know, the the book of Ruth has a special place in my heart. The the name of Ruth has a special place in my heart because my wife is named Jaya Ruth Birdwell. Because my youngest daughter is named Tanavi Ruth Birdwell. Because in my community group, there's two other people. There's a little baby Ruth, and there's another lady in our community group named Ruth. There's a lot of Ruth in one group, right? You know what the the name of Ruth means? Companion, true friend. All of us, we could start seeing extraordinary miracles through ordinary means, all of us, through our decisions, through our actions, through our, our words, all of us, not just if we look for a Ruth, but if we are a Ruth ourselves. True friend to your spouse, a true friend to a friend in your life, a true friend to somebody in our church who may have gone through some unimaginable loss recently. Imagine the power if you were just a true friend who said, hey, where you go, I'm gonna go. Hey, let's lock arms, I'm with you in this. I know it's hard, but I'm with you, and I'm not gonna say that, I'm gonna show that, and we're gonna walk through this together. Imagine how God would use you as a true friend in somebody else's life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this example of Ruth, of a friend that sticks closer than a brother, as your scripture says, of a friend who's not just willing to declare and demonstrate, not just willing to declare her loyalty, but to also demonstrate it, to reflect your loyalty to us. God, I love this book because every single one of us watching this or in this room has the opportunity to make a similar impact in our lives. By just going to the people around us, by the decisions we make, by the conversations that we have, that you can do extraordinary miracles. 
in what seems like ordinary means, even though nothing and no one is ordinary in your sovereign plan. And God, I thank you for that. God, I thank you that as we look at the story of Ruth, we're ultimately looking at a story of God through Jesus Christ, through his perfect love, rescued us out of unimaginable loss, out of even death itself. Jesus, through your love, your perfect love, fear drowns, death is defeated, doubt is conquered, and we get new life in you forever. And God, I thank you for the way this picture of Ruth points us to the bigger picture of Jesus Christ and his loyal love to us. God, help us to sing about that now. Help us to celebrate that now in this moment. In the name of Jesus, we pray.